today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We've uh, been glued to the story out of Thailand. Rescue workers in Thailand have uh, brought out the eighth boy rescued from the caves. Uh, uh, five still remain, four boys and I believe the couch, or sorry, the coach, uh, still there. Uh, here's uh, some clips we're going to play for you. Uh, here's first Matt Gutman reporting uh, from one of the rescue operations. When people wonder, why haven't they brought everybody out? Why aren't they just spacing them an hour apart? That's because it is so difficult still that the divers themselves need to rest the supplies. They are blowing through their oxygen tanks, and they have to replenish them every single day. Uh, This is Danish diver Ivan Kardarkic, uh, who took part in yesterday's rescue of four boys, tells NBC's Today show the kids are incredibly strong considering what they've been through. Young kids that are in no way trained to, 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 to do cave diving. Cave diving requires uh, a lot of training, and it's still dangerous even for, for the best cave divers. Let's bring in Joseph Deloge, Professor, Department of Geology and Planning, Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Professor of Earth Sciences, University of Toronto, and on the line with us now. Joseph, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. What were your first thoughts when you heard of this situation and what was going on in Thailand? Well, sort of mixed feelings. Uh, having explored some caves myself, there's always that that intrigue of, of heading into the unknown and wanting to uh, explore, but also knowing that these cave systems are particularly dangerous, particularly during monsoon season. So, you know, being aware, not not paying attention to warning signs uh, is always a tricky thing. I'm sure many are second-guessing uh, the coach and the decision to go in there. Can you see how this would have happened? Uh, poking your nose in to the unknown, yes, I can see. Uh, going that far, uh, difficult to judge because it, it appears that the, the entrance got uh, flooded pretty quickly. So you only have one option, and that is to go deeper to look for different places to get out. So going as deep as they did uh, during as dangerous season as they did, uh, you can always ask questions, but I think right now focusing on the rescue is the key thing. So what is the biggest challenge for those that are in the cave surviving? I mean, I think they went almost 10 days before uh, they even identified the location of where they were. What would be the biggest challenge for them? Well, the... These cave systems, caves and caverns, are part of the geology of this particular area. You'll see many places around the world that are comprised of these uh, particular features. You need three requirements for the kinds of caves that they're in. Uh, You need limestone, which is a highly soluble bedrock. Uh, You need considerable uplift from sea level so that um, there's uh, water freely draining through the system. And you need lots of rainfall. And given the monsoons that occur in this area at this time of year, uh, Thailand has all of those three characteristics. And they produce some pretty spectacular geological features in the subterranean environment. And it's those three characteristics that produce these sorts of environments, these sorts of caves. Absolutely. Limestone is known to, to have a high frequency of fractures and cracks in it. Uh, water uh, dissolves the limestone over geological timescales. You produce all kinds of conduits and caverns and tunnels. And so water uh, freely flows through these when there's an abundant water, groundwater available to do so. And it just expands the cave systems over, over geological time. So they produce some pretty spectacular um, features and forms in the, in the subground. So I don't want to oversimplify this, but it almost sounds like building a sandcastle on the beach and watching the tide come in. Uh, not quite, but 
given that this is hard bedrock, uh, uh, it's slow slow to form over over long time scales. But once they do form, the the nature of the deposits in there, you may be familiar with the term uh, stalagmites and stalactites. Mm-hmm. These fantastic uh, flow rocks, basically, as as water drips off the cavern roof or is deposited on the floor of the caves, you get these spectacular features forming. And there's actually some some uh, damage that's being done in this rescue operation. Uh, it's unavoidable, but uh, that's why these the conservation and the preservation of these environments is really quite important given how long they take to form. Now, for somebody who is stuck in that environment for that length of time, how do you survive that? What's the, what's the biggest challenge? Well, you know, there is a, a big community out there of cave divers, or spelunkers as we call them. Uh, there's a uh, literature base actually on speleomyths, which are the, the nature of deposits in there. Um, the key thing in this one, though, is that the fact that water is critical in the formation of these, and lots of water, and the water flows. These are underground rivers uh, w- with high velocities during the rainy season, and so you can't just venture into these locations without the fear of flooding at any given time. As a matter of fact, the water can seep into the cracks and fissures of the rock almost instantaneously following a rainstorm. Mm. So within a matter of minutes to hours, what was a dry cave system can be completely flooded. What about air? We've heard that uh, the, the air quality ha- has, has become poor over time. How do you explain that? Uh, naturally, caves have uh, less oxygen in them just because of the subterranean trapped nature of the air underground. Uh, they have something like uh, 5 or 6% less oxygen in the air in the caves just naturally. But uh, if you're consuming that air, that what you basically have in the dry parts of the cave when they're flooded is trapped uh, areas. And if you start consuming that oxygen in the trapped areas, replenishing it is a, is a slow process. So you can start consuming the oxygen in the, in the small areas where they're trapped, specifically with water surrounding you. Uh, you were mentioning how the water seeps in and how if it starts to rain, the, the caves can fill up almost uh, instantly. Is it porous enough for that air to circulate? I guess if it's, if it's moist, no. Uh, no, and certainly the water's infiltrating down. Um, some air will come with that as well, but not enough to replenish oxygen at the rate you were you might consider good for human health. But uh, uh, so water flows freely. <laughs> uh, oxygen less so through these really complicated uh, fractures and cracks and fissures in the rock. So and some of them are quite wide, both vertical and horizontal. The cave systems are mostly horizontal, though you do have to come up and down. Uh, through various features, but the water itself is flowing through several parts of these vertical cracks. And once they get into these underground rivers, um, especially as they're confined in tight areas of the cave, the velocities can be so high high that it's almost impossible to swim through when the flow is uh, really up. Uh, we've heard that the journey, and, and they've taken uh, another four boys out today, but we've heard that this journey can take several hours. Give us some sort of idea of what it would be like for them. Yeah, even even without water present, uh, these uh, caves are, are slippery. As a matter of fact, um, the temperatures are quite cool in here, and it, the caves in uh, southern Ontario here can have ice in them during the summertime uh, just because of the, the, the lower temperatures in there. So they are cool, uh, wet, um, slimy sort of surfaces, so difficult to walk in even in so-called dry conditions. But now you add the complications of flowing water, 
water that's picking up sediment and dissolved materials that become very turbid or very uh, opaque and you can't see where you're going. Uh, so that, that combination makes it incredibly, incredibly treacherous of being swept into the water and into the underwater uh, uh, compartments and tunnel parts of it. So the images you see coming out today, uh, some uh, the heads are above water at certain points in the cave system, but then because the tunnels aren't just horizontal, even conduits, you have to dive down into the submerged parts and then back up into the subaerial parts. So very complicated in, in terms of moving any distance uh, with water in it. How difficult would it be considering the experience level of these boys and some, uh, from what we understand, aren't, aren't, aren't good swimmers or, or have very little swimming experience at all? Uh, you talk about being an experienced diver and going into these things and how treacherous it can be. Uh, how, how, would, how can you teach young people to do this uh, in, in a short period of time? Well, there's professionals there, thank goodness for that, uh, that are doing training on the fly. I mean, th- there's an advantage that these are young individuals. Uh, they are also uh, athletes, so perhaps there's a, uh, a lining there that says that they're more physically capable in terms of doing this. But nevertheless, um, uh, just learning to breathe in the underwater apparatuses, not getting scared and confined things, I think that's one of the fears of overcoming caving is that you're crawling through very confined, dark spaces and uh, you're uh, wedging your way through and sometimes you don't even know if you can make your way back through it, let alone uh, get to where you're going. So um, uh, it's almost an impossible task, but the fact that eight boys are out now means that they're doing something right in terms of giving them confidence, training, and the number one thing, don't panic. Don't panic. What happens when you panic? Uh, especially when you're underwater driving, is you 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 want to remove your mask. You might gulp some air in, uh, those kinds of things. So if you just if you remain calm and breathe calmly and have practice at breathing calmly, it helps. But again, I can't overstate the fact that even when you're training under ideal conditions, it can take weeks and months to be even comfortable hmm. uh, in that situation. But they have a lot of trained professionals there that are uh, really trying to help. Joseph Deloge has been with us, uh, Department of Earth Sciences, Faculty of Arts and Science, University of Toronto. Joseph, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to a report put together by the Canadian Automotive Dealers Association, auto tariffs would be catastrophic for the country. Also, U.S. orders are tough to put together for steelmakers due to tariffs. To talk about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's on the line with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. First, let's talk about the tariffs in Hamilton and specifically the Canadian steel industry. Uh, we remember when these first came down, initially Canada was exempt from them, and then, of course, uh, they eventually uh, took effect. How long can we stay in a scenario like this with, before we start to see some, some failure within our own industry? Uh, I don't think too much longer. Um, there haven't been any lot job, reported job losses in Hamilton in the steel industry, steel market. Uh, but uh, I think that what is going on is is that uh, these companies are absorbing losses on operations on the hope or expectation or assumption that this is temporary and that they will be resolved and then it will return to the status quo ante to business as usual. So they're taking a, rather than lose these skilled people, and laying them off, 
they're holding on and keeping them on payroll uh, because they expect it to end rather quickly. They may be wrong, but that's a, you know, that's a calculated uh, guess. So that explains why the losses haven't shown up yet. It's not because the losses, the losses the, that the tariffs aren't producing losses or causing harm. It's just the companies are eating the losses in the short run. But I think in the companies are not constructed to be in business to lose money on a long-term basis. And so they'll start to, if this looks like it's going to go on much longer, I think by the fall, you'll probably see the companies in Hamilton starting to lay people off. Uh, we've talked about this uh, over the past. Uh, many CEOs, uh, people who run businesses, large businesses in, in North America and around the world, um, sort of uh, talking amongst themselves on how they survive all of this. Uh, and some making contingency plans for even a couple of years down the road. Uh, Is that naive, uh, or is there a reason to believe this could be, or we could be heading down a road that is the new norm? It really depends, Scott, on how we, we handle this. And and I know uh, I'm I'm pretty <laughs> my view is very counterfactual or a minoritarian view, uh, but um, I believe that we, it lies within our hands to address this in the hands of the Prime Minister of Canada and the Governor of Canada. Um, but we have to really change directions. The idea that we can go in there and do the you know we're going to match him mano a mano tariff for tariff is just absolutely the worst possible policy we could do and may make people feel good you know i'm going to go out there and kick sand in the bully's face before he punches me apart and to, uh, you know uh, cleans my clock knocks my lights out that that's not the way to go we can stop this but we're going to have to put some water in our wine yes we're going to have to climb down yes it may be a little bit embarrassing and humiliating but you know this is not a game this is the economy of canada and there are 18 million people employed in the economy of Canada. And sometimes we have to set aside our own individual, uh, rather large egos, as politicians have, and you say, you know, i got to do what's best for Canada rather than what's best for my political party or best for my own personal political career future. And, and I, we just can't go on down this road. Uh, I just but, do not believe we can. But the PM numbers, uh, the PM's numbers are up. Uh, the the public loving the way that he's standing yep. up to Donald Trump. How do you combat this? What do you do? What's his next move? Um, first, in terms of the part, I don't dispute and deny that there is support there. Uh, you know, and it just reminds me over and over again of my late mother's advice to me repeatedly. She said, <laughs> you know, you don't cut off your nose to spite your face. And uh, you don't commit self-harm just because you're angry. Mm. And that's what we're doing right now. I mean, there isn't a single serious person that I know of in North America who will, with a straight face, and honestly say to you, Scott, or anybody, you know, these tariff wars, they're kind of good, okay? They're kind of cool, you know, they're, 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 they're good for the economy. Not one single study says that over 300 years. Everyone acknowledges that they are highly destructive. And so here we are. Everyone knows that. Politicians know it. Prime ministers know it. You know, journalists know it. Professors know it. And we're saying, now let's go down that road to destruction. Hmm. Instead of saying, look, we've got to find something else out. And the most obvious answer is, let's get back to the negotiating table. And let's say to Mr. Trump, okay, Mr. Trump, we've both made mistakes. We've made mistakes on our side. You've made some. Let's get back to the negotiating table and put some water in our wine 
where we made the big mistake, Scott, and I, this has nothing to do with partisan politics, we went into those negotiations from the get-go where the Prime Minister and Christia Freeland were saying, no way, no way will we open up those six or seven or eight defended industries. Instead of saying, we're here to negotiate a new, better deal, and if we have to put some of those protected industries, that tiny, tiny number, because hundreds and hundreds of our industries are wide open, but if that's what we have to do to get a better deal to ensure greater and better and more secure access to the U.S. economy, so be it. Then where did, they, where did this go off the rails then, Ian? Because when these negotiations first started, everyone was praising the Trudeau government. And, well, well, not you everybody, know, but most well, people were, yes. Yeah, and, and you know what? This also went across all party lines in the sense that it was yep. all hands on deck. Everyone was, was saying what a great job yep. everybody was doing to get the preliminary work yep. done, the meetings yep. going on prior to all of this. When did it go off the rails? I think it went off the rails from the get-go, and I've been saying that from the get-go. If one read, and it was a, not a secret document, anybody with a computer can go read the annual report of the United States trade rep, tabled annually very publicly in the U.S. Congress and given to the U.S. President. And that report, going back to the Bill Clinton years, for goodness sake, year after year after year, has been documenting the irritants, as they like to call it, uh, in the Canadian trade relation with the United States. Now, it wasn't, they weren't just focused this report on Canada. They listed all the countries of the world, and they listed the trade irritants with each country. But we're just talking about our country. And there was a, lo- a long, well, long list. Uh, a, uh, there were a number of serious trade irritants that have been really uh, um, uh, upsetting the Americans going back to the 1990s. Every president signed off on that report, including President Barack Obama. And it was supply management, dairy, it was telecom, not allowing American telecom companies to come in and so forth. As I said, we're only talking seven or eight or nine protected industries out of several hundred industries. So it's not as if we're being, you know, opening up the Canadian economy. We already did that in NAFTA in 1993. Some may say, so, though, Ian, like if we're making that sort of concession, it's not that big of an industry. We're not talking about that much uh, of an industry in size and, and, and participation and such. Then why is it bothering the U.S. government that much if it's not that um, big? My interpretation is this. The, um, the, the report... I, 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 just bear with me for one moment, okay, Scott? A lot of Canadians and people around the world who look at the U.S., and I've lived twice in the U.S. on sabbatical. I estimate in my lifetime I've been there over 400 times. I visit the United States five, six, seven times a year on average, and I will continue to do so. My sister lives there, has all her life. A lot of Canadians and foreign people outside of the U.S., they look at New York and Chicago and San Francisco and L.A., and they think that, you know, the streets are paved with gold. Everybody's really rich in America. Everybody's really, really successful. And my goodness me, what a, what a remarkable country. That's an urban legend. If you drive, as I have, through rural South Carolina or rural Ohio or rural Pennsylvania or rural New York State, upstate New York, you can see poverty that will just blow your brains away. There's a lot of people in the United States outside the big, rich, successful cities that are not doing well. They are the left-behinds, you can call them that. They're the forgotten Americans, you can use whatever phrase you want. And you go into places like rural Ohio, and you can see it. You know, they're driving 10-year-old cars, not one person, many of the people. And they're living in homes that are quite run down. You can just see it with your eyeballs as you drive down the street. And so what I'm saying is 
Trump understood that, and so did Bernie Sanders on the Democratic Party. And, but they didn't get a voice from the leadership of the Republicans or the Democrats until 2016. And Trump realized there was a large number of Americans who were being left behind, and so did Senator Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side. And they started to voice, give voice to these people. And then we, outside of the United States, because many, many people around the world think they know the United States, but they don't, said, oh, it's just because of this crazy man, this demagogue Donald Trump, not realizing 62 million Americans voted for him. And unless we want to start saying that in half of a country is crazy, and I don't find that very productive or useful as an explanation. Instead, I'm saying, gee whiz, those 62 million people must have been really upset with their lives. And that's why they voted for Trump. And Trump is saying, look, part of the reason you're falling behind, part of the reason you're not doing well, is because our friend and foe alike around the world are cheating. Now, I don't think that's completely true. The problem is, it's partially true. Some of the countries are cheating big time. I mean, the Chinese have been cheating for 20 years. So where do we find the balance? Where do we find the balance here, Ian? If all the experts say it's, you know, it's about open markets, it's not about uh, uh, protectionism and such. How do you how do you convince these people that have lost their jobs that that that's not? You're absolutely right. I mean, the prime minister has put forward one set of policies, and I, I don't agree with him, but he's at least put forward a set of explanations. He said, you know, it's got to be inclusive growth, and so it's got to help the uh, people that are visible minorities and women and so forth. And I'm not disputing that, <laughs> that people that are visible minorities or, or, or gay and lesbians or transgendered should be left behind. Of course not. Of course not. But I think that's a bit simplistic. I would put it more on class. Than identity. That so, and that's say, not so much a special interest group as much as it is the middle class. Well, I would say the more the lower middle class and the working class. That's who's really been left behind. And uh, and he and we, uh, Mr. Trump, is focusing on it by saying, "I'm going to make you know America great again." That famous line, and that resonates with a large number of Americans. So it so resonates. Where I'm going with this, Scott, will it work? We have to go into negotiations, and we can't deny that. And just by calling Trump names, yep. we have to accept this is a reality we must confront. So if Trump, Donald Trump makes some decisions, policy decisions, that give a, a little bit of a kickstart to the Rust Belt, will it work? I mean, is that the answer here? Um You've asked a very, very tough question. I say that it's very tough because, in one sense, it does work. I mean, China's been very protectionist for the last 20 years, and, and they have just done gangbusters. I mean, they suppress their currency, they suppress their wages, they suppress the, they gave subsidies through crown, government crown corporations to their companies for their exporters, and they have grown at a phenomenal rate. So in the short run, you know, as it's, it's long as one, only one country is doing it, that country will benefit. The problem is, if everybody starts doing it, then you've got the problem of what we had in the Depression with the beggar thy neighbor uh, policies that contributed mightily to the, to the Depression at the time. And so, yes, in the short run, I think it is working in the following sense. And there will be lots of academics now who will be screaming if they ever heard me saying this. But listen, there are companies who are moving to the states because of the uncertainty that Donald Trump is engineering. And he's doing it, I think, deliberately. He's not crazy. He's doing it so that to, to implicitly say to companies, and sometimes explicitly, look, you got a problem with the border? I've got a solution for you. Come on into America and invest in the United States, and you won't have any of those problems. And foreign, and that plus the tax cut and the deregulation that he's doing, foreign capital is now pouring into the United States to invest in the United States. 
So in one sense, it is working. But if somebody said that you asked me, is that a sustainable long-term policy uh, that will work? I don't believe it is. I think you have to, at the end of the day, be competitive with other countries. Your companies have to be competitive if you want to be sustainable. In the end, then, Canada has to give up something. You said climb down. Does that mean we have to prepare to give up something here? I believe that the solution, and there is an exit ramp off this road into oblivion, into the valley of the shadow of death, to quote the famous uh, Alfred Tennyson, the poet. There is an exit ramp, and the exit ramp is the negotiating table where we go back and give something up, something that Trump wants. I'm not saying roll down, lay down, and let him jump all over our head. We've got to give something up. We've got to put some water in our wine. My God, Scott, it's called negotiations. That means you offer to give something up if they give something up to you. We went in from the very beginning and said, no, no, we are not going to budge on supply management. No, we're not going to budge on telecom. No, we're not going to budge on airlines. No, we're not going to budge on airports. No, we're going to budge on procurement. I mean... My first question way back when we started this a year and a half ago is, what the hell are we doing there if we're not going to negotiate? We said we're not going to negotiate any of these issues. Well, then why are we there? Is the auto industry the last Trump card here? It is, no pun intended, because, and he knows, he, Trump, the man, the president, knows how vulnerable we are. Not that everybody across Canada works in in autos, of course not. But let me be really blunt, it sounds a bit ethnocentric, but the most important province in Canada, no offense to Quebec and the Maritimes and elsewhere, but the most important province is Ontario. It's 38% of GDP, 40% of the population. That means there's a ton of votes in Ontario. And Ontario is absolutely dependent on the auto industry. And so if he ever puts those tariffs in, and not one study, there's about four or five different studies that have come out all in the last two, three weeks, uh, crunching the numbers, showing that the impact, if he did apply tariffs to cars, would be absolutely devastating. I mean, one study said loss of 160,000 jobs, and it would fall disproportionately, as you know, in southern Ontario and around the GTA. So how is Trump just going to keep twisting the arm until someone yells uncle or it snaps? That is my interpretation. I believe he is bit by bit twisting the, 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 the you know, the uh, whatever you call it, the, 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 the nut on the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the bolt. And uh, he's just going to keep squeezing that thing until somebody finally says, OK, I, I surrender, I give up. And that's why I said, why don't we run to the front of the line and be proactive? And instead of being perceived to have having caved in finally at the 11th hour and 59th minute because we were facing Armageddon, why don't we do it earlier, much earlier, when we're not facing Armageddon, when it doesn't look like we are being forced to, to, to compromise? And then we've got a lot more leverage. If we wait to the very bitter end before we finally do it, we're not going to have very much leverage. It really will be a, a pure surrender at that point. If we do it sooner, and I mean like now or preferably six months ago, but that's, too, that's gone now, can't go back. But how about like right now over the summer? I would love to see uh, uh, Christy Freeland hold a press conference and say, we're going to plan B. 
Everything's on the table, Mr. Trump. Let's go back to the bargaining table tomorrow morning. Everything is on the table. Very dramatic headline. It would attach, uh, capture uh, the media's attention around the world. It would certainly atta- uh, capture Mr. Trump's attention. And then you can get in there and start nuancing it and, you know, and then doing real negotiations. But I think we've got to do something like that because if we don't, he's just going to ratchet up the pressure, ratchet it up, and we're going to suffer more and more and more. And at some point, we're going to finally say, Uncle, I you know, I, I surrender. How much has this attitude been con- been attributed to Donald Trump's demeanor, to his personality? Are are Canadians who are involved in the negotiation or politicians using his demeanor for political purposes? Um, I think, but not the people in the room. I actually have met the chief negotiator, by the way, here, and he's from Ottawa. He's from External Affairs Canada. He's a highly professional individual, by the way, deeply experienced. He was our senior person, uh, one of our senior people on the uh, European negotiations. Uh, very, very experienced and very fair and very professional man. Um, so I, I think he is, you know, doing uh, really yeoman's duty for Canada inside the negotiating room. I mean, at the political parties, I mean, politicians are politicians, and so they want to gain advantage for themselves and their party because they want to be reelected. I, I understand that. And then when you factor in the fact that Trump does have some features that are really, really obnoxious. I mean, there's lots of things about him that are yeah. give us lots of reason to dislike intensely. And uh, so it's just, it's just too easy <laughs> almost mm. at that point for a politician to say, I'm going to stand up to that uh, blank, blank, blank person and, uh, and know that you're going to get... Uh, celebrated and well, be cheered. Well, as you mentioned, lots of studies now coming in regarding the auto industry and just how bad this could be if it does uh, go in that direction. Is, is is it time for Canada to blink? Will this be uh, will be will this be the card that makes that happen? This is the Rubicon. This is the auto industry. If he does uh, put on uh, tariffs on us, that that's crossing the Rubicon. And that, uh, you know, the Rubicon into, into hell, <laughs> into Hades or hell. Yeah. And uh, it truly will be uh, where something, you know, all cards are off the table. I mean, I'm, again, I'm hoping that the backroom, the PMO and the other backroom people uh, are, are having backroom channel, back-channel conversations with the White House and the other departments, the Commerce Department, to find out how credible is that threat, how real is it going to be, and if it is, let's head it off at the pass and, and start offering some serious uh, negotiations and offer of concessions on some issues to ensure that does not happen because as I said it will be devastating especially in the GTA and and in you know Windsor for example and of course the steel industry too the largest single buyer of steel is the auto industry Ian Lee has been with us Sprott School of Business Carleton University Ian as always thank you for the time much appreciated thanks a lot Scott You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another story we're keeping our eyes on. A U.K. woman has died after being poisoned with a nerve agent that struck a former Russian spy back in March. We're also going to touch on uh, security issues with North Korea with Simon Palomar when we bring him on. Uh, In the meantime, U.S. or sorry, um, a 44-year-old woman poisoned by a military-grade nerve agent in southwest England has passed away. Don Sturgis and her boyfriend touched a contaminated item linked to the March poisoning of a Russian spy and his daughter, though they have not been determined for certain that the two cases are linked. Here is Dr. Christine Blanchard, treated Sturgis at Salisbury District Hospital. The staff here at Salisbury District Hospital worked tirelessly to save Dawn. Our staff are talented, 
dedicated and professional, and I know that they will be hurting too. All right, let's bring in Simon Palomar, Research Assistant Centre for International Governance Innovation, and is with us now. Simon, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure, Scott. Do you think this was a targeted attack, or is this something left over from a past attack? Well, I mean, I would have to go on the assessment from, you know, police and security forces in the United Kingdom. There's no indication that this is, you know, if it was uh, this nerve agent, as it's you know, the, the friends given suggested is there's no reason to expect it was anything other than, you know, a mistake, an accident resulting from, you know, the, the previous the previous use of, of Novichok agent on the on uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia some months ago. So I mean it does sound like it's uh, you know, like a, a bizarre accident, a bizarre, you know, hangover from that incident and nonetheless it doesn't help uh, the relations between Russia and the UK. You know, the Russians continue to deny any any having any hand in this, and the United Kingdom has, has remained um, steadfast on that point that they believe it was, you know, it was Russian agents who had to have infiltrated this agent into the United Kingdom. So, in that regard, it doesn't really matter if it was an accident or not. What do we know? What do we know about this victim? What, what do we know about her history, Don Sturgis? You know, um, I, I have no special insight about that more than anybody else. You know, it does appear that this was, uh, you know, simply a wrong place, wrong time sort of situation with this individual and that um, that they may have come across, you know, the working hypothesis from the police is that, you know, she may have come across a container that contained some some residue or enough of the agent to, you know, be seriously, uh, to be not seriously ill and then obviously die, but there was nothing to indicate that uh, in her background that this was anything other than a, you know, a terrible error in many ways. So the other two, obviously, uh, a spy and his daughter, there's no reason to believe, any reason to believe these people were targeted at all then. Just wrong place, wrong time, touched something they shouldn't have. That's what the available evidence suggests, you know, right now, which is, uh, you know, it, which is a particular, in some ways, particularly upsetting aspect of this, and, you know, even during the Cold War, when um, you know East and West would come to, you know, sometimes assassinate or uh, abduct uh, defectors. Generally, it was done in a fairly discreet manner that didn't hurt others. You know, if this was indeed the case that uh, the uh, Novichok nerve agent that was believed to be used on the Skripals ended up, you know, getting out in the loose somehow, getting out in the wild and was let loose, and somebody comes across it and inadvertently poisons themselves, that's all the more you know, concerning and demonstrates how, you know, whoever did release this agent into uh, this town in the UK, how reckless, you know, they were. What does this say about the initial incident and the investigation afterwards? If this happened in March and here we are in June and there's still residue of some sort of it around, I mean, they must be concerned because perhaps someone else could come in contact with it. Do we have any sort of idea of how it originated in, in the sense that how this, this uh, couple uh, became in contact with it? Well, I mean, that's one of the particularly concerning aspects. Um, when it was first reported that uh, UK Ministry of Defense thought that this was uh, a Novichok nerve agent, which was a class of rather exotic chemical weapons created by the USSR um, in the later part of the Cold War, 1970s onwards, was really the heyday of it. It wasn't a, a, a chemical weapon that had been in, 
you know, encountered on the battlefield or to the same degree that, you know, other things that um, Westerners may have heard about in the news over the years, like sarin, for example, or, or BX gas, which were, you know, well known to be present in the Middle East. And there were concerns during various Iraq wars that these would be used. Um, this compound, it's, it's considered more exotic, less is known about it. Um, and so dealing with it, I mean, my impression is that there's a bit more of a learning curve here. So when you're dealing with a well, more well-known, widely understood nerve agent, you can better assess, you know, how long it's going to be dangerous if it has been released in the public, you know, given the, the conditions in the atmosphere and whatnot, how long it will persist, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, the fact that it has been, if it was indeed the same agent, it's persisted this long, I mean, I think it probably raises a whole host of questions that, you know, authorities rather not be dealing with, whether it was released at the same time with the, as the original attack. Was this directly linked to the script bottles? Was this uh, from the same batch, but released later for a... So we don't, we don't know that. We, don't, it, we know. don't know if it is the same stuff or it's even if it is from the same batch. We it don't, appears we don't. to be the same stuff, right. but this is, you know, a very, you know, when you're dealing with a relatively unknown substance, there are just, the science is not as good. The body of evidence is not as good. Uh, then theoretically, there is still a danger. This stuff is still out there, correct? Well, I mean, this is the sort of incident which is, um, you know, really quite trying for public authorities. It's, it's kind of the old you know, terrorism problem. You can't stop 100% of terrorist attacks. You know, the, uh, the one of the adages is the bad guys only have to get through once. We have to get them 100% of the time. So a situation like this, it does alarm people, and it, it could be, you know, and most evidence so far suggests it's simply bad luck. But, you know, there is a, it does raise that doubt that perhaps there is a source of this that was, you know, carelessly left somewhere or improperly disposed of by someone for whatever purpose we don't know, and it's out there. And that, that leads to alarm, and that can lead to panic. Uh, the other two recovered, did they not? Uh, yes, uh, Sergey and Yulia Skripal both recovered from their poison. How come they recovered and, it, and this woman passed? Do we know? I couldn't tell you. I would have to imagine it had to do with the dosages they received, how it was how it was dosed to them. There's a whole host of factors that uh, can affect how well um, nerve agents work or don't work, how quickly somebody is treated, um, underlying health conditions beforehand, and so forth. So it, it's hard to say, you know, why... Um, if somebody did to try to uh, assassinate Sergei Skripal in March, why he did not succumb to the poisoning, but this uh, this uh, young woman did. What about relationships with Russia? And if they're behind it, which it certainly looks like they are, is this worth it? I mean, such a primitive way of getting rid of an old spy and then it having do this collateral damage. I mean, is it worth it? Yeah, well, assuming that this was um, somebody working on behalf of the Russians, I don't even say that, you know, assuming it was a Russian government employee, because we don't know that. But assuming it was somebody working on behalf of the Russian state, I mean, this is probably not the sort of outcome they would like. Um, but one thing to remember, this is a point that, you know, lots of uh, Russian expats who have run afoul of the Putin government like to make, is that they believe that there's a, you know, very important, that the Kremlin thinks there's a very important symbolic, you know, value to these right. sorts of attacks, you know. So it's not so much the information. It's not so much the information they possess. It's just proving a point back home that you can't get away. Ultimately, right. is that you can 
you can be a turncoat, you can change, you can flee to another country, but ultimately we will get you. And it's, uh, you know, to send a, set an example to others. Uh, the fact that there has been this, this uh, death and uh, the second situation, does this help investigators? Does this provide more clues? You know, presumably, you know, and this is a terrible and callous thing to say given, you know, an innocent bystander's death, but more information is typically better. It, it allows... It allows investigators to get, uh, you know, a better sense of where they think the agent came from, how it was released. It, it, it gives them a, either a, a broader or a narrower, you know, piece of territory to look at. Um, you know, so far it seems that the United Kingdom is very intent on following the, the investigation into the script files through. They've made efforts at the international uh, organization that governs chemical weapons to hold Russia to account there. And they seem to be intent on pulling this through. So in this case, it's unfortunate, but it may, in fact, make their job somewhat easier. Uh, The fact that the other, the first two survived, does that provide any more information? Can, does does that help investigators? You know, that's something that's, uh, you know, a bit beyond, you know, my wheelhouse, how exactly, you know, these agents work once they're inside. Right. The body, but generally, again, anytime that uh, you want to determine the origin of a of a whether it's a any sort of weapon, and particularly chemical weapons, the, the more data, the the better. I mean, this is unfortunate. This is one of those bizarre cases where it's part, you know, old fashioned crime scene investigation, sort of police work, trying to figure out what happened, and it's probably easier to figure that out if you can talk to a survivor or not. And it's also partially, you know. Bycraft, and it's partially, you know, rough and tough diplomacy as they try to get answers um, out of anybody who can offer them in the Russian embassy. So there's a whole number of threads here, and having, you know, more people to talk to, having more, more data, more evidence, and it's always where does always this better. where does this leave the worldview of Russia, especially when it comes to U.S. relations? Yeah, it's a you know, a timely question, because as you may know, later this week, mm-hmm. uh, NATO holds a major summit in Brussels. And, uh, you know, Prime Minister Theresa May, she's been dealt a couple of, you know, of uh, pretty rough uh, rough hand of cards this week with two ministers quitting on her in, in uh, quick succession. But, you know, there's no evidence to suggest that she's going to stop that campaign that um, British diplomats have been waging to hold Russia to account for this. They seem to be fairly intent on doing that. And back in March, they did a good job of rallying their allies around them. This is something that will come up in Brussels. And unfortunately, right after the meeting in Brussels, Donald Trump is supposed to be on a plane to go to Finland to meet one-on-one with Vladimir Putin. So, Bingo! Where, where does this fit into that discussion? It certainly, it certainly the timing is not great for Trump and Putin, because we were looking mostly at um, this NATO uh, meeting to be about uh, NATO members not following up on their pledge to spend 2% of GDP on, on defense, uh, the Trump's routine accusations that other countries free ride off the United States. This does give, you know, Theresa May uh, a wedge issue. If she wants to get in there and convince the and tell the president to send a strong message to Vladimir Putin and perhaps get a, get a statement from NATO members, you know, denouncing the use of, you know, chemical weapons on British soil. This would be, uh, you know, a good opportunity for her. Trump's riding a pretty fine line here, isn't he? Absolutely. And this 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 meeting, you know, between 
uh, Trump and Putin has received not nearly as much attention as the uh, Trump and Kim summit did, but the consequences, you know, for um, American foreign policy could be much larger. All right. Speaking of the summit with Kim Jong Un, obviously the the intent of there was to cool things uh, in and around the peninsula, specifically in regard to advancement of nuclear arms. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, State Mar- uh, Mike Pompeo is brushing aside North Koreans' accusations of gangster-like demands aimed at forcing it to abandon nuclear weapons. Pompeo spoke in Tokyo after meeting with his Japanese and South Korean counterparts in Tokyo. Let's listen to what he had to say. While we are encouraged by the progress of these talks, progress alone does not justify the relaxation of the existing sanctions regime. Are we any more clear on whether there was progress made during this summit? Where does this stand? You know, it, it, the initial reporting coming out of you know, Pyongyang over the weekend, I mean, a lot of this looks to be, you know, quite predictable. North Korean negotiators seems, you know, we don't ultimately know what was said in the room between Pompeo and his counterparts, but North Korean negotiators probably sat down with a long list of things that they wanted in return for uh, for some preliminary steps on denuclearization, whatever that was. There was some talk like uh, perhaps uh, North Korea would start putting together a, an accounting of all their facilities and all their materials, and that would be a first step. And that they would want something pretty significant in return for that uh, movement on a peace treaty or sanctions relief, and that was that was predictable. That was uh, what a lot of people were expecting to see from the North Koreans. And the fact that the Americans seem surprised by this has a few people scratching their heads and you know wondering exactly, you know, what if Pompeo, you know, wasn't you know completely pleased with the outcome of these talks. You know, what what exactly were they expecting? Will this become more intense before we see real progress? I mean, was this will this be as easy as, as Donald Trump has alluded to? Oh, it won't be as easy as he alluded to, not at all. Um, one of the ways that uh, analysts like to characterize North Korean uh, negotiating behavior is they like to go hot and cold. You know, they uh, they warm up to you. You have a you know, like we saw the meeting between Trump and Kim. You know big, grandiose statements. Everybody's getting along. Everybody can agree on the great vision of the future for the two countries. And then Mike Pompeo comes to uh, to North Korea, and it's clear that he wants to keep barreling forward with you know North Korean concessions. And suddenly the North Koreans get very hostile. The rhetoric increases. And they, you know, sometimes they insult their negotiating partners. Sometimes they do things like we've seen um, at their nuclear complex, they continue to upgrade it. They try to provoke to see how serious the other party is about continuing this. And, uh, you know, see if they can get the other party to make a few concessions in order to keep the negotiations alive. So that kind of, you know, going from warm and friendly to cold and escalating, that's kind of a pattern we've seen before in, in, uh, with the North Koreans. And it's not going to be surprising if they continue that exact pattern and, with this administration, with, with its focus on the short term and on, on getting immediate results, and that could be an interesting that could be an interesting uh, combination. Is this on Donald Trump's radar anymore, or is he gone? Is he moved on? Is like, oh no, we got the talk started. Uh, we're making progress. All's good here. Let's move on. Yeah, and that's a great question because that's a that's a concern that you know that that I have had and others have raised is that the the thing that could kill this would simply be the president losing interest in it. You know, whether he really believed the statements he 
made after the, the Singapore summit that, oh, you know, you don't have to worry about North Korea now. We've solved that. Or I just prevented a nuclear war. I mean, whether that was just bravado and chest something for the sake of, you know, getting some media attention or whether he really believed that, it nevertheless, you know, betrayed this, you know, short-term focus he has that, you know, he likes having uh, the media attention, likes being able to point to, look, I signed this document. Well, now that we're looking at, you know, maybe years of negotiations, you know, really hard-fought ones, is this administration going to have the the bandwidth and the, the patience to hmm. see that through? That's a real concern. The bandwidth. I love that. Uh, how does... So he's moved on from Kim Jong-un, and, and there's no more f- fire and fury at this point. Uh, now he's more so co- focused on the summit with uh, Putin. How does he declare a win in that? Because he came out of North Korea with another signing ceremony and the big Sharpie and, and, and you know, we're moving forward, we're talking. How, how does he, as you said, this doesn't seem to be getting the attention, although it should, um, I, I guess because there's no threat of immediate warfare. But how does he claim a win out of the summit with Putin? Yeah, it, it, that's an interesting question because, I mean, Vladimir Putin is no... Fool. And I think, I suspect that the Kremlin, you know, they have a read on the American president. They have a sense of what he likes, what he doesn't like, what he probably hopes to achieve here. And when you look at, you know, what they achieved in the Singapore summit, I mean, North Korea got the United States to agree to North Korea's goals. Um, and they framed it as a win for the United States. Perhaps Donald Trump will get a, a solemn pledge from Vladimir Putin that they did not interfere, that the Russians did not interfere in the American election. He'll hold that up as some success. Uh, perhaps we'll see some vague commitment to raise oil output, or we'll get a or we'll get a vaguely worded statement talking about a you know a bright and hopeful future between the two countries, where they eventually look at reducing their nuclear stockpiles and have better relations. There are a lot of you know vaguely worded things that. You know, both America and Russia can agree to. I mean, better relations between the two countries would be wonderful, but it becomes a question of better relations at the expense of what? Uh, of giving up, you know, giving up Ukraine, of of, of forgetting are, the fact that Russia may have interfered in the American election? And that would be a bridge too far. How do you think Americans, and I'm sure the answer will be, depends if it's the base or not, uh, and mm-hmm. as in on all these questions, but how do you think Americans are viewing him cozying up to Putin? Uh, you know, at what point do they say, you know, what your staff's saying that they interfered with the election? So, um, and especially the UK and even chemical weapons in Syria. H- how does he address these issues? Well, one thing that's worked out very well for him is that the Robert Mueller's ongoing investigation, I mean, there's been a very effective campaign, I think, to paint it as, as, you know, a relatively meritless sort of, you know, maybe not use the president's word witch hunt, but, uh, you know, an investigation that's going nowhere. And for, you know, his supporters, Russia has sort of become, they've become deaf to the word. For American diplomats, national security types, um, that's on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, you know, this continued need to uh, cozy up to Vladimir Putin, whether it's Someone speculated he thinks that he can honestly be Vladimir Putin's personal friend or thinks that, you know, the, the major disagreements of the countries are, are surmountable just by good chemistry. You know, it horrifies a lot of people. And that's where we've seen the Congress actually push back a little bit 
against the president where they have the powers to is still on the Russia file. They can't prevent him from meeting Vladimir Putin, but they can continue to pass sanctions on Russia, for example. And that's what we continue to see. So, you know, I don't think Russia is the sort of thing that's going to win Democrats votes at the midterms or really hurt Donald Trump's party during the midterms. But it is the sort of thing that does get Congress's attention still. Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistance, Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thank you for the time and expertise. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.